We are again turning our attention to the book of 1 Corinthians. We have so far studied the introductory verses, the introductory reading, the thanksgiving that Paul is giving in the beginning. And thus, we have not actually looked at any unique text so far, any unique doctrine. We have just, so to speak, warmed up. And for good reasons, I mentioned last time that Paul don't want to immediately rush to the important subjects that he wants to address in this letter, but he starts with laying a foundation for addressing these issues. So first we had the customary greeting that we often see in Paul's letters. He introduces himself and his co-writer, Sosthenes, and those he writes to, of course. And then he gives them grace and peace in, in verse 3. And second, we had the thanksgiving in verses 4 through 9, which shows us that Paul is first and foremost turning his attention towards God and to what he has done in the lives of the Corinthians. These brothers and sisters in Christ is continually on Paul's heart and he lifts them up before God to give thanks for them, to thank them for, or thank God for their gifts. So that, that is the, the, so far, what we so far have been looking at. Today we will look at verses 10 through 12, and uh, we are going to read that together. So if you have your Bible with you, I would ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll read all verses from 10 to 17, because they make out one whole. We're going to deal with the first part this time and the next part next time. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17, if anyone wonders, I'm reading from the NASB, the NASB, also known as the Non-Armenian Standard Bible, or if you are a King James only, the, the non-authorized Standard Bible, maybe? No. It's the North American Standard Bible. I found it to be a very accurate translation, so I'm reading from that. Verse 10. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that none, no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, Beyond that, I, did not, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. That concludes the reading of the word of God. Now, beginning in verse 10. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Stop there. Paul will now start dealing with the uh, specific problems in the church at Corinth. And he knows he needs to do that. He needs to speak in, uh, at the authority or in the authority of Jesus Christ. He does that by, by beginning here with, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now by these words, Paul is showing at us that he does not speak in his own name. All right? Despite the fact that he, as an apostle, very well could have done that, he has the uh, divinely appointed office of apostle. And he had also spent quite some time in Corinth. He had been there for a year and a half. He knew these people, they were like his children. But he doesn't do, he doesn't go and, and speak in his own name. Instead, he begins by invoking the name 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. This means that he appeals to the authority of Jesus Christ. And he puts emphasis on the fellowship with Jesus Christ. That was the the end of the last section right there in in verse 9. In the fellowship of our Lord Jesus Christ. It means that he invokes the whole person and the whole character and all the works of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he puts his hearers' consciences under divine rule, so to speak. Now the word for exhort here, parakalo, means to beseech or exhort or comfort. The word is closely related to the noun parakletos, which is uh, the word that Jesus is using of the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John. You might have heard of the paraclete, that is a reference to the Holy Spirit. So this is the this word is closely related to that. And uh, in other words, Paul is, is careful to comfort the Corinthians in his, in his rebuking them, in his exhorting them. He wants to come alongside them and help them on their way, help them understand, help them so that they don't lose hope. Now, John Calvin writes in his commentary on 1 Corinthians that Paul is handling the Corinthians mildly, because they were much too sensitive to be able to receive the rebuke that Paul has to, or must give them. He needs to deal with them like a, and I quote again from Calvin, a skillful surgeon who soothes the wound when about to apply a painful remedy. So note therefore that Paul is approaching the problems in other Christians by first Invoking the name of Jesus Christ. And second, to do that with utmost care and comfort. He even goes so far as he, that he calls them brethren, brothers and sisters. He puts himself in their place. They are like his, like his spiritual family, so to speak. Now, this is a good guide for problem-solving in the church. It uh, shows us how to approach different problems. It's not only, it only, not only gives directions for church leaders, but also for every Christian that deals with other Christians and lives with other Christians. How to deal with them. If there is a problem, how do you go about it? Not every situation is, of course, like this one in Corinth that we read about. Our background could be totally different from this one. But the methods and the means are the same. In fellowship and in the power of our Lord Jesus Christ and, and with the care of, the, of a sensible Christian heart, you come alongside the brother or sister that has sinned or are troubled and helped them along. That is the biblical way of approaching a, 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 a problem in the church. Now that being said, let us not forget that uh, this is a serious situation. There are serious problems in this church, as we will go on to see in the, this text and in the chapters to follow. The problems that Paul will be addressing in this letter must be dealt with. So let's look at the first of them. Second half of verse 10. It says, That you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. So note here that Paul is first coming with a positive exhortation, then with a negative, and then again with a positive. So two positives and one negative. First, he exhorts the Corinthians that they all agree. Now, literally, this is saying that they all speak the same thing. That is the word, what the word in Greek means. So the point here is that they are to be united in speech, in what is taught, in what is preached, in doctrine, in truth, in theology, 
They are, so to, stand, so to speak, to stand as one in their testimony of Jesus Christ to the world. And that unity must be based on truth. There, uh, there is no true unity in a church that doesn't believe the truth. And most importantly, there is no true unity without Christ. As we saw, Paul was careful to point back to Christ before calling the Corinthians to unity. In verses nine, uh, 1 through 10, he invokes the name of Christ 10 times, more often than in any other place in the epistles in the New Testament. So it, it is only in him that we find true unity with each other. But that requires that those who claim to be Christians, those to, who claim to bear his name, to know who he is. And we can only know that by knowing the truth, by the study and the teaching of Scripture. So therefore, as Paul says here, church members are to agree on truth and doctrine. There is a good reason why we believe in the importance of sola scriptura, scripture alone. It gives us a common ground, a common foundation from which we can know who God is and know who we are, that we can know doctrine, we can know the truth. It is only by affirming the authority, the inerrancy, the infallibility and the all-sufficiency of the word of God that we can grow in knowledge of him and in sanctification and ultimately be glorified. When human tradition, pragmatism, politics, earthly authority or even the church itself becomes the foundation for unity, that is no longer true unity. Only knowing and speaking the truth can lay the foundation for true unity in the church. And then we come to the negative. And that there be no divisions among you. This shows us the weight of being united in doctrine and truth. Few things are so confusing to new believers as when supposedly older and more mature Christians fight and divide over simple things such as the gospel or the word of God, what it is, what it says. Unfortunately, that seems to have become somewhat of a norm in today's Christian church. They might seem to have a, an, an outer social or bureaucratic unity, but there is no true inner unity. In doctrinal matters, they, is, they are completely divided. One believes that you can be saved only through Christ, and one believes that you can be saved in many ways as long as you are sincere. One believes that the gospel is the good news of forgiveness of sins, of reconciliation with God, and eternal life. And another believes that it is primarily a thing of social justice. One believes that marriage is between one man and one woman. And one believes that it is between two men or two women or whatever combination. Now this indecisiveness and fluffiness obscures the word of God. And it gives unbelievers reasons, all the reasons to mock a Christianity that doesn't seem to agree on one thing at all. The only thing they agree on is that everybody can believe whatever they want. And this is, of course, not Christianity. I'm ironic. It is the opposite, where truth and error is mixed. Tragically, 
It is a reality among many who call themselves Christians. And the reason for this can be found in the fear of holding to absolute truth, absolute doctrines. Because this requires, if you are serious about your faith, absolute acceptance and absolute obedience. Now, I ask of you, is it hard for you to hold to absolute truth? To keep certain doctrines, to be true in all times and in all circumstances. To stand for these truths when it is required and to take the consequences for it. Are you ready to do that? Is it not because in previous generations men have compromised with the world? They have mixed truth and error. They have affirmed things that are not godly, not biblical. That we are so confused. I'm not necessarily talking about us, but the people in our day. They are so confused about what the Bible says. About who God is. About who man is. About what the gospel is. And how are they going to know harder issues? Like the nature of the triune God. Or freedom, the freedom of God. Or the responsibility of man. Of the mystery there is divine providence if they don't know the foundational issues. Now, the word here used or translated as division, at least in this text, is the Greek word schismata, from which we get schism. The word has the meaning of something that is torn apart, ripped apart in two. In the New Testament, it is used to, to illustrate how two things are separated. Like in Mark 1.10, in the baptism of Jesus, it, it says in yeah, verse 10, how the heavens opened, meaning that the heavens pulled apart in two. There's the word schizo used. Or in the death of Jesus, in Matthew 27.51, it is used to illustrate how the veil of the temple was torn. And the meaning is clear. Paul is talking about something that separates Christian in the same way that you separate or tore, tear apart a piece of cloth by pulling it in opposite directions. That's the meaning of the word. And I want to paint this picture for us so that we can know and understand how destructive Division is for the church. That, to, that uh, something that to the world can seem like a, a, a trifle, a formality, a disagreement about words, is to the church a, a question about life and death, about church life and death. The most serious division a church can have is that which involves doctrine. Relational issues between members, misconduct, immorality, those are all signs of an unhealthy church. But divisions on doctrine is the recipe of death for a church. And as we are going to see here later in the text, this is what was plaguing the church at Corinth in its early years. Before we do that, however, we will conclude this verse with the ending exhortation. But that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now this might seem like a repetition of what was already mentioned at the, the, the beginning of the verse, but there is a subtle and important addition found here in this last statement. So uh, again, note the words made complete. It might say to be united in your text or be perfectly joined together, depending on which translation you have. 
The word used by Paul in the Greek or uh, is used in other classic Greek literature and, and in other places in the New Testament to, to speak of uh, mending nets, mending of uh, bones, joining something together which was torn apart. It means simply to get back together, to grow together again. This, of course, stands in contrast to that being torn apart, schismata. We are not to be ripped into two parts, but grow back together perfectly, completely. And in what way? In the same mind and the same judgment. Now, mind in this context means outlook, means stance, orientation, attitude. It's more of an outward mindset, how you relate to others. It is not completely void of rational judgment, but primarily it means a way of thinking, your attitude. And judgment bears the meaning of consent or agreement among brothers and sisters. It is voluntarily to be voluntarily willing to constrain one's rights, so to speak. It is used by the Apostle Paul in Philemon, verse 14. There it says that Paul didn't want to keep Onesimus without your consent. That's the same word he uses there. So it means agreement. So what Paul is saying here is that being of the same mind... And the same judgment rules out hypocritical unity. One might say that they agree in doctrine and what, what's being said. But when it has to be shown in your life, in how you relate to others, in, in agreeing with them. If you don't believe what is being taught, your hypocrisy will be shown they who only with their lips confess the same teaching, but don't believe it in their hearts. They are what John MacArthur actually points out. They cannot be happy, productive in their own Christian lives, or be any of any positive service to the congregation. So therefore, we must strive to be complete, to be united, to be joined together, be one in the same mind and in the same judgment. However, being of the same mind and the same judgment does not mean that there cannot be differences on issues where the scripture is not clear. And I am speaking about such issues such as unfulfilled prophecy, perhaps the end times, Neither can you expect that Christians are going to agree on every current event. We have seen that in the corona event that we have going on. How Christians in different places have concluded differently. How to approach this. How to handle it. What is God honoring to do. Scripture grants every believer liberty of conscience. The 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith states in chapter 21, titled Of Christian Liberty uh, and Liberty of Conscience, section 2, that God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or not contained in it. Yet, we are not to let that liberty become a license for us to sin. We cannot turn away from godly practices just because of conscience. To reject divinely appointed leadership or to be a cause for divisions and splits. Unity should be expected where the Bible is clear. This includes, of course, the authority, the inerrancy of Scripture, 
the personal work of Jesus Christ, the sinfulness of man, the gospel, all such things are explicitly stated in the scriptures. But some things have not been fully revealed and we will not know fully, as it says in chapter 13, verse 12, until our Lord is revealed again. Now what I am saying is that if you are expecting perfect unity in every single point of doctrine and on every single interpretation or whatever little nuance of doctrine, you are hard-pressed to find such a church, to find such brothers and sisters. I think that you'd better find that person in the mirror. And let me also add this. This call to unity does not mean total uniformity. There is a difference between unity and uniformity. We are not to all have the same personality. We are not all to dress the same way. You can if you like, but you don't have to. We are not of the same background. We we don't even speak the same language. The urge for unity is not to be confused with that of uniformity. The uniformity of a cult might seem tempting sometimes, but it is not biblical. We're not to emulate the outward appearance of leadership. Please don't. As much as I would like you all to love church history, theology, I understand that some of you will not spend all your spare time reading about these things, looking into these things. We all have our unique interests, our unique character. So, no, unity is primarily a doctrinal matter what is being taught, what is being understood of speech, of mind, of attitude, and of agreement. Now move on to verse 11. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Paul goes on here to lay forth the, the foundation or the reason, the base for his addressing of this issue, this division issue. In this verse, Paul first mentions that he has been informed of the problems in the church, specifically by Chloe's people. And note also that Paul again uses the word brethren. The repetition indicates that Paul views the church like that of a family of a family. They are like brothers and sisters to him. Therefore, he expresses strong affection towards his Corinthian brothers and sisters. He treats this issue as if it were a family issue, a family unity issue. Division within the family is immediately felt among all the members of a family. Divorce is really the destruction of a family. And in the same way, church division division is like divorce. It can easily lead to the complete destruction of the local church. And the second half of verse 11 shows us the actual problem in the church. There are quarrels among you. This word is used by Paul in Romans 13, 13, to show the opposite of behaving properly and to stand in contrast to putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the opposite of that. It is one of those sins that makes provision for the flesh. Titus chapter 3 and verse 9, it says that it is unprofitable and it's worthless. 
Clearly, the disputes in the Corinthian church, which will be specified in verse 12 in just a moment, were of no use and should be done away with. So let's, let's look at those. Verse 12. Short words, but we'll spend some time in here. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. The clear meaning of this verse is, of course, that the Corinthians were suffering from party spirit. A party spirit. They were holding to different parties in the church. Let's break up this verse and take a closer look at what it's saying. First of all, note the beginning that each one of you is saying. This little phrase is easily missed and can be can be noted among different scholars and theologians that they don't even seem to take note of these few words here in the beginning. But we need to consider, we need to consider the truth that is in here. Paul is here not simply accusing some of the Corinthians. He is accusing each one of you. This is a serious charge. Consider a church so emerged in strife that each and every single member gets pulled into it, that are factioning themselves, putting themselves in different parties. Not one seems to grasp the seriousness of the situation. Just take a step backward and say, what are we doing? This is an emerging split. We need to stop. But no, there doesn't seem to be that person in the Corinthian church, except for maybe Chloe's people. Now, this is a sober reminder for us how easily it is to get pulled into church politics. How easy it is to not see the damage it is causing to the unity of the church, to the body of Christ. It is easy to find a position that seems to favor you, that seems to be what you stand for, and then you go ahead and try to beat the other side with all your might. Now, we see this in the world. We see that in party politics how more often than not it becomes a reason for deep hostility among people. How important it is to see the other side lose seems to be the main goal for some people, regrettably. Therefore, watch over yourselves. It is not your position with this or that person or you being right on this or that practical matter which makes you and identifies you with Christ. You with body and soul in life and in death are not your own but you belong to the faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, second, the verb used here, is saying, is the same as the one used in verse 10 for the word agree, which we saw literally meant to speak the same thing. Now, clearly, the Corinthians here are not all speaking the same thing. They are very vocal in their disagreement. This is, as we saw earlier, very troubling to the church, especially to new believers. When what they say become become a reason for factionalism, for personality cults, It is a reason to turn away from such people. Such talk is destructive to a church. 
So be careful with what you say. Rightly does James speak of the evil tongue. It is full of deadly poison. Be careful with what you say. And now third, note the groups mentioned here. The four groups. They are those that call themselves to be of Paul, of Apollos, of Cephas, and of Christ. Obviously, these four men are not men that we associate with something bad or evil. So, uh, it is, whatever is bad with this, is, it is not because they associate with that person. No, we are to interpret this in another way. The first group calls themselves as being of Paul. Now, this is likely a hint towards those people that were saved during Paul's visit in Corinth in, chap- in Acts chapter 18. Those that first came to saving faith during his preaching and during his establishment of the church there, they had a reason to have a, a bond to Paul. They, he was like their father, their spiritual father, So these Corinthians formed a Paul party. They put up him as the greatest of teachers, the greatest of evangelists. And this in contrast to them primarily of Apollos, because Apollos visited Corinth after Paul. Also read about that in Acts chapter 18. And this factionalism was indeed not something that the apostle approved of, and therefore he puts his own group, so to speak, here first to show this is wrong. They are not of me. They cause division. Also, it is possible that this group consisted primarily of Gentiles. As Paul is mentioned to be the apostle of the Gentiles, so Peter, or Cephas, as his name here, was the apostle of the Jews. So this group took pride in the fact that Paul was their apostle. He was their patron. This is maybe not totally sinful in and of itself. Paul's mission was indeed to go to the Gentiles, to be an apostle to them, to the uncircumcised. And he did have a strong opposition to the Judaizers, those who came and required the Gentile believers to be circumcised. You could imagine that these people held to a stricter, no, not that they not held to a stricter adherence to the Mosaic law, that they say, said something to these to those that held to the Mosaic law, that they, you have the circumcision of flesh, but we have it of the heart. We are of Paul. Now, beware of such a, an attitude, of such a heart that becomes proud. The second group is called those that are of Apollos. Of Apollos. Apollos was a learned Jew who uh, came to Corinth after Paul. He, uh, it says in, in Acts chapter 18 that he was an eloquent man, that he was mighty in the scriptures. It says that he powerfully refuted the Jews and demonstrated by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. This was likely This likely caused a number of the Corinthians to form a strong relationship to Apollos, to become impressed with him and to say, we are of Apollos. And this is not strange. We all love the skillful and wise orator. And uh, we like to rally behind an apologist who is able to defend the Christian faith to show to the, the opponents that we have a secure foundation. It is well founded. Not to 
mention any names, but I know uh, some of us, me included, like to listen to a certain wise man who has done many debates, defended the Christian faith, and for good reasons. He has much good to say. There is much to learn from such people who have thought through these things. But again, this rally behind Apollos here had become a reason for sin among the Corinthians. They had used it not to primarily defend the Christian faith, but to be right. To be right in debating Jews. To look down on those who were of Paul or of Cephas, as Paulus obviously had a talent for debating, refuting error. Likely he had a greater talent for that than any of the apostles. But this caused bitter, bitter strife in the Corinthian church. We can infer a sense of disappointment in Apollos, of this party spirit that aroused around him and Paul from the last chapter of this book. And turn here briefly, if you like, to verse 12, chapter 16. We can read of Paul's mentioning of Apollos to the Corinthians. He, Paul, indicates that Apollos is no longer in Corinth, but likely in Ephesus with Paul. And by his words, we can see that Apollos is reluctant to go back to Corinth. It says in verse 12, But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come back to you with the brethren. And it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. As we read in the beginning of this, you can turn back to chapter 1 if you like. At the beginning of, the apost- of this epistle, the offers are mentioned to be Apollo and Sosthenes. Sosthenes was most probably the ruler of the synagogue in Corinth at the point in time when Paul was there and he became converted. However, Apollos did not join in writing to these Corinthians. He did not even send his greetings. It is therefore reasonable that he had become disappointed of the Corinthians and of their party spirit. Yet he still agreed to go back to Corinth, not just now, not at this point in time. Now the third group is named to be those of Cephas. Cephas is the Aramaic name of Peter, the Apostle Peter. He was the leader of the apostles and a well-respected, a well-known man among all Christians for his close relationship to our Lord Jesus Christ. Whether or not Peter actually had visited Corinth, we do not know. He could have, but it's also possible that they just have heard about him, his closeness to, to the Lord. That reputation had gone everywhere in the Christian realm. As we can read in the Gospels, it mentions the Apostle and specifically Peter lots and lots of times. So he was most likely a very known person to the Corinthians. And uh, to become especially fond of this guy, as he was the leader of the Apostles, is, is understandable. I've heard some godly men say that the first person they want to meet when they get to glory except for our Lord Jesus Christ, is Peter. Peter. They want to meet the one that was so close to the Lord in his earthly life, that walked with him for three years, that saw him walk on water, and he himself walked on water with the Lord. He who denied the Lord and was restored. It is perfectly understandable. It is intriguing To have a natural fascination with this man, Peter. Yet, such a fascination easily leads to an overemphasis on his closeness to the Lord. Like the Roman Church today, the Roman Catholic Church, 
who long has claimed to be the successors of Peter. They claim that they base that claim on on church history that Peter went to Rome, became the first bishop in Rome, and that Peter had received special privilege from the Lord in Matthew 16, 18 through 19, where it talks about the rock upon which Christ will build his church. They take that to be Peter and now them. So this close connection with Peter and fascination with him has become a sin for the Roman Catholic Church. The office of the Pope is a direct expression of that sin. And the New Testament knows nothing about this being favorably connected. Instead, our Lord is very clear to point out to us that the greatest among us shall be the servant. He says, whoever exalts himself shall be humble, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Furthermore, as we noted earlier in uh, that Paul was uh, the apostle of the Gentiles, so Peter was the apostle of the Jews. Galatians 2 and 7 says that Paul had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. Here we find another reason for those who claim to be of Peter. They were the circumcised. They were the law-abiding Jews. They took pride in their Jewish heritage. And again, this is not necessarily wrong. Paul says in Romans chapter 3 that the advantage the Jews had and the benefit they enjoyed because of circumcision was great in every respect. But... As we know from the rest of the New Testament, this pride, this Jewish heritage of theirs, became a reason for their fall. They had turned from being well prepared, from having the scriptures entrusted to them, to reject their own Messiah, to become so hard in their hearts that they did not believe. And even among those Jews that did believe, this pride seeped into their minds. And they easily separated from the Gentiles because of it. They were of the circumcision. They followed the law of Moses. It is understandable that they were easily deceived by Judaizers who came in and spread much confusion in the early church. But this had no room in Paul's mind. The epistle to the Galatians, perhaps the earliest of the New Testament books to be written, is a direct attack on this Judaizing spirit. Chapter 5, verse 12, has one of the strongest verses in the whole epistle, where it says, speaking of the, the Judaizers, I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. Now the fourth and the last group is those who call themselves of Christ. Now why is that bad? Aren't we all called to be Christ's own? Well, there are different interpretations as to the identity of this group, but uh, in all likelihood, and the one interpretation that I would favor is that these, the persons in this group were those that were the most keen on rejecting apostolic authority, and especially Paul's apostolic authority. They tried to appeal directly to Christ. And this is, of course, a serious thing. To reject the authority of the Apostle Paul is, in reality, the same thing to reject the authority of Jesus Christ. You cannot claim to be Christ's own and reject that which he has established. 
this group again is again addressed in the second epistle to Corinthians in chapter 10, verses 7 through 11. There Paul reminds them that if anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. And he's talking about him as an apostle, of course. And then again, he goes on in verse 8 and says, For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, apostolic authority, which the Lord gave for the building you up and not destroying you, I will not be put to shame. So, this was perhaps the group that has had the greatest animosity towards Paul. And thus, he includes them in the ironic of Christ reference, as if they, was the mo- they were the most pious group. They appealed to Christ. In reality, they were the most carnal. So these are the people and the problems that Paul are dealing with. When we look at them and consider them, consider the problems they had, it is easy to become condescending and to say to ourselves that we will never do these things, we will never divide over such issues. But beloveds, let me warn you, church history has proven over and over that this has happened in the church and it has caused it Much pain. As I mentioned, the Roman Catholic Church, the greatest Christian church, has the most most members of any denomination. They claim that they have apostolic succession, that the Pope is an direct is in direct line with the Apostle Peter. That he has received that which Peter received from Christ. The keys to, the, to heaven and the earth. This has caused them to pronounce heresy. Death sentences on many true Christians. Because they simply have rejected the authority of the Pope. And it has of course led to much bloodshed and martyrdom. And further, I think we are all guilty at some point in our lives, our Christian lives, to favor one Christian over another. No, I don't think we have the ability to see all the good and bad things of a a person and rank them accordingly. But I think we can become blind to the faults of those that we love those that are specially dear to us, specially close to us. Perhaps it's a beloved pastor who once preached the gospel to you. You saw it for the first time and you came to know Christ. Of course you can have a special close relationship to that man or woman. It wouldn't be a pastor then, but it can be a woman who brings you to Christ. Now it's not wrong, of course, to show love towards such a person. But when it becomes a reason to reject other true Christians and what they have to say simply because of a disagreement, of a secondary issues, then that affection has turned into blindness into narrowness of mind. And even worse, if it is simply a matter of personality, style of preaching. If you try to split a church merely because you dislike the leadership of a pastor, of an elder, you're acting selfishly, childishly. In fact, it is probably pointing towards some other issue in your life that you have to first deal with. You be, so please, 
Don't become blind to your own faults and to the faults of those you love. Now, as we have come to the end of this text, before we leave, let me put one final reminder on our hearts, on our minds, as we leave this place. We have looked at the first of many issues that Paul will be dealing with in this epistle. The danger of division, the importance of unity, of doctrinal unity, let me add that. Now I beseech you, every single one of you, to take this warning and exhortation to heart. To consider your own responsibility in avoiding church conflicts and to promote church unity. It is your duty to educate yourself, to know what the Bible is saying, so that you can edify the brethren, the saints, and not cause splits. Are you careful to study the different doctrines of the Bible? To compare what is being said from the pulpit with the word of God? Are you humbling yourself to the possibility that someone else has done that and is carefully rebuking, exhorting you in order to avoid division and quarrels? Are you hot-headed? Do you feel the need to be right? Are you looking to Scripture to know what is truly right? Beloved, Let me encourage us to seek unity by knowing the truth, knowing the foundations of that unity. This is, of course, the eternal word of God. Let there be no quarrels among us. Don't make it our mission to become a church that is filled with division and quarrels. Let it become our mission to be one just as the Father and the Son are one. Let us honor the triune God who truly are united. Let us emulate that in living with one another. And let it all be based on the truth of the Word of God. Because there is no unity without truth. Amen. Let us pray. Our Lord and our Heavenly Father, we have heard the stern warnings of the Apostle Paul this Sunday of the danger of dividing over issues of not knowing that which is true unity. Oh Lord, help us understand your word as we study it, as we seek you, Lord. Help us understand it. Help us apply it. Help us promote unity. Help us to glorify you in that way. Oh Lord, let there be no divisions among us. Let there be no quarrels. Let us put off such thing and put on Christ instead. Lord, renew our minds. Renew our hearts. Let us put to death that which is old, that which is of the world. Oh Lord, let us not become like the world. Let us not become like those who make it a goal in and of itself to be divided, to fight, and to see the others lose. Oh, Lord, no. Let us instead be humble. Humble, Lord. Give us humble hearts. Help us see that. Help us understand that. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would move so within us. Please, Lord, help us grow in unity. 
and let there be no divisions among us. I ask this, Lord, watch over your church, for Christ's sake. Amen.